there. It's another Dishcast. I'm back with you in a beautiful, warm day in Washington, D.C. It's All Saints Day today, November 1st, All Souls Day tomorrow, just after Halloween. And I am delighted to have an old friend and wonderful writer called Farid Zakaria, whom you all are aware of. He's the host of the CNN show, Farid Zakaria GPS, which has been on the air since 2008. It's kind of amazingly long duration for a show like that. He's also a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of several bestsellers, including In Defense of a Liberal Education, The Post-American World, and 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Farid, it's lovely to see you and lovely to have you on the Dishcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. <laughs> well, let's start with your really interesting biography, which probably most people aren't fully aware of. Tell us a little bit about where you were born, what was the atmosphere when you grew up, what led you to become interested in politics and the life of ideas. Where were you born? I was born in Bombay, India, now called Mumbai. I was born to a, to a very engaged family. My father was a politician. My mother was a journalist. And our dinner table was sort of alive with uh, ideas. But it was all, it, it, the, the ideas, what I, what I grew up with was an atmosphere in which ideas were very consequential because it was India newly independent. My father uh, once said to me that the most important political choice he ever made in his life, he made when he was 14 years old. As a, as a young Indian Muslim, I'm in the 30s, he was presented with two visions for an independent India. Nehru and Gandhi's of a secular democracy and Jinnah's of a religious nationalist state, Pakistan. And he chose India, secularism, democracy. And his whole life was caught up and bound with that struggle. And that was, you know, it, it was, it, it infected everything he did. He, he really lived for it. My mother was a journalist. So we'd spend a lot of time, you know, she was at, at, at the deputy editor of a, of a big magazine, kind of a weekly magazine. And we spent time in the, at the dinner table talking about what she should put on the cover. And it was, it was very democratic, you know, my parents would allow us to just participate and we'd always be telling my mother she was doing the wrong thing. We'd always say, no, 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 you should be. And my mom had this great joke. She'd say, you know, when you go to a dinner party, when you're a journalist, everyone tells you how to do your job. She said, you know, I just one day want to be a surgeon. Because when you sit down, nobody says to you, you know how you go into the, the, when you go in for those those heart surgeries, you guys should go in from a completely different angle. <laughs> she always thought that it was sort of, everybody felt that it was open season. So that was the kind of atmosphere in which I grew up. Bombay was very small in, in those days, in the sense that the, you know, kind of people who, professional class, upper middle class, you knew everybody knew each other. And, and, and there was another wonderful uh, element to that, which was, you know, my parents knew poets and they knew architects and they knew theater people, as well as, of course, politicians and businessmen. So it was much more integrated in a way that it is no longer. It now is much like New York or, or London, where, you know, the bankers all hang out with the bankers and the, and the poets such as they are hang out with the poets. But it was a, it was a wonderful world in which you sort of felt like anything was possible because you, you were exposed to lots of different views. And, 
And I was always, I don't know why, fascinated by international affairs. I remember my mom when she was, I was 14 and she was the Sunday editor of the Times of India, which is a big deal. It's sort of like the New York Times. And she paid the most she had ever paid for anything to excerpt Henry Kissinger's memoirs. And I remember reading them and helping her, telling her, you know, you should put this section when he goes when he goes hunting with Brezhnev. And I can't believe, but it, you know, when I do it mathematically, I was 14 or 15 when I when I read them. But your mother in these what what the 70s mm-hmm. at that point, being deputy editor of a major, that's that's a big deal. She was obviously a pioneering woman in journalism. Am I right? Yes, very much. She was the first person at that level in the Times of India. She was one of these people who just made herself indispensable. You and I worked with somebody like that at the New Republic, Dorothy Wickenden. She was sort of like that, where like after a while, she was just so damn competent that you couldn't imagine doing without her. She then took that and and also started to write a little bit mostly interviews, occasional articles. She would labor for months on articles. It, would, it was real blood, sweat, and tears for her. She could edit very well. Writing them or editing uh, them? Writing them. Editing, she, she could edit ah. very well. She was, she was great at putting out a magazine, you know, the kind of visuals of it, the production of it. But I remember this one time she wrote an article about the world of Islam in 76. She went to visit a big exhibit in, in London called the Festival of Islam. And uh, it took her forever. It was like sweating bullets. But but she did it. She did it. I, I once read it again recently, and it it was it was good. But it wasn't. Didn't come naturally to her. What was your parents' experience during partition? Presumably, well, you've already said that your father took a stand. Now, taking a stand for secular socialist democracy, which is sort of yep. what it was, when you were a Muslim, must have been a real statement. Did he? Was 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 it something that was common among India's Muslims at the time? Was it was it just fill me in about that? Was it a real life changing decision for him? Yeah, no, it was absolutely a life life changing decision. It was an unusual decision. It was an unpopular decision within the the kind of engaged Muslim community of the time. Because think about it, you're given two choices. In one of which, the Muslims are going to rule, right? So if you're an ambitious young man who wants to be a politician. In one scenario, you get to be prime minister if things go well. In the other scenario, you're destined to be a minority. And so from the raw political side, the, the more ambitious, the more you know, kind of zealous Muslims tended to go to, toward Pakistan. And of course, Jinnah was promising a democracy as well, so they could convince themselves that that was how they want. But my father very much believed in the, he had absolutely drunk the Kool-Aid of Gandhi and Nehru, the nonviolence, secularism. He was, a, he, was a, he was a Fabian socialist with all the pluses and minuses that that means. You know, he really believed in the brotherhood of man. And, and in one of the saddest things I saw at the end of his life, he died about 15, 17 years ago, was to see the rise of this much more Hindu nationalist India. Because for him, that really had been his life's work. And to see, you know, and, he had, and he had tried very hard to espouse secularism, even when it was something that Muslims didn't want to hear, because the Muslim community also had its own religious nationalists, even in India. And in India, because of the what happened with partition, Indian Muslims have ended up being almost structurally discriminated, because everywhere they are a minority. If you think about it, right, it's an odd system where there, there are only four constituencies. My father's was one of them, 
where Muslims make up more than 30% of the, cons- of the constituency. Because all the Muslim majority areas became Pakistan by, by, by nature. Right. So you have 160 or 170 million Muslims in India now. And the ruling party, the BJP, does not have one Muslim representative in parliament. So the majority party does not have a single person who represents 180 million people. Hmm. And that's partly because of the the winner takes all constituencies, or like like the British or the American system. Exactly, exactly. But there's no proportional representation, no ranked voting. So, I can't. It must have been heartbreaking for, to dedicate your life, risk to some extent, things in your important things in your life, for an ideal that you sh- that you saw slowly collapsing. I mean, this is <laughs> this is not completely alien to our experience here. I I. Not in the same way, because it's not yet that bad. But uh, yeah, I mean, you and I, let's, let's, we'll, 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 you and I grew up in a world in which the idea that liberal democracy would ultimately die from within, as opposed to be extinguished from without, was not something on our minds. But anyway, tell me more. So, so, so what schools did you go to? I went to a private day school in Bombay called the Cathedral and John Connon School. It was founded, I think, in 1850 by a bunch of Presbyterian missionaries. It was affiliated with the oldest cathedral in, in Bombay, the St. Thomas's Cathedral. We began every day, Andrew, you'd be happy to know, with we would all <laughs> imagine this, so 600 Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs belting out, you know, one of the, the C of E hymns, you know, nearer my God to thee, or when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Then we would do a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Then we would do the Lord's Prayer. And then we would do announcements every day. So it was a very, very good school. You were, yeah, you, but you're a Muslim. Yeah. Or you were a Muslim, and you're going to... C of E, Anglican-dominated school, saying the Our Father every day. Was this, a, this is clearly a piece of absolute hideous repression. <laughs> I, I loved it. But, but you were fine. You I loved, loved it. it. And so did most, mostly everybody. What did I love about it? I loved the, the you know, the, the, the Church of England does Catholicism without the dogma. So you have you have all, the, <laughs> all the fun, the smells and bells, the pomp and ceremony. I loved the music. I thought it was... And, and, you know, it gave me, I, this is why I, I, you know, we were talking about this earlier before we got recording. I think one of the great joys of living in a diverse society is that you learn, you learn, you borrow, you, what, what is now called you appropriate, which I gleefully and joyfully do. I think it's a wonderful thing to see. So for me, one of the things that I got out of it was, you know, to see the, the beauty and power of Christianity. It's, you know, I was at that, at the time I was growing up Muslim. I'm now, you know, I don't know what I am, but, but I thought that, it really made me see something very beautiful about it and and to appreciate it in a way that I don't think I would have. I, I, and, and you see this in India, by the way, much more than you see it in almost anywhere else because, you know, after all, what is Christianity fundamentally about? Tom Holland has this wonderful book, Dominion, where he talks about this. It's fundamentally was a revolutionary ideology at the, at the end of the Roman Empire telling people, this whole Roman obsession with power and hierarchy is, is, is completely wrong. It is the first who shall be last and the last who shall be first. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the dispossessed. Jesus spends his life you know, with poor people. The whole 
project of Christianity seems to me to be to empower the powerless. And you saw people doing this kind of work in, in India. And so when I came to America and I learned, you know, discovered what Christianity meant here, it was so puzzling because I thought, the, you know, the whole of the New Testament basically is be nice to poor people. And here you come and it's all about these scraps of Deuteronomy and Leviticus about, you know, masturbation and gay and, you know, gay sex and even abortion. It just feels so marginal to the central message that we were taught when I was growing up in India. Yeah, I mean, that's true of evangelical Protestantism and some aspects of Catholicism, but there's also that big Pope Francis wing of, I was always brought up with the values that you you spoke of. Is there, now, again, in some ways, this is not, this is what, 30 years after independence, yeah. roughly, yeah. somewhere yeah. around then? Uh, you might think that a colonized people would want to throw off every vestige of the culture that had been imposed upon them. But India seems to be a place where they kind of liked a whole bunch of it and sort of weren't in that way anglophobic. Am, am I, is this just a, is this just a, a projection of mine or does it, was there something kind of special about the English Indian connection? I say this because my own grandfather was in India as a military officer for the British Army. So it's kind of weird <laughs> to have this, this confluence, but he also fell in love with India. I mean, a lot of those colonial officers had this weird in, in, enchantment with the place. Is this a myth or do the Indians, I mean, they still play cricket passionately. There are lots of other British, British practices, institutions that have retained some sort of, that's, that's strange, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated question, honestly, because, because yeah. it's, it's not quite the sort of the, the Raj nostalgia that, that sometimes gets portrayed in, in movies that's real, because particularly for Indians of my father's generation, they actually, you know, who actually experienced the British Raj, it was incredibly racist and incredibly repressive and oppressive toward Indians. I mean, at every level, you know, the Indians couldn't walk into certain rooms, certain hotels, certain clubs. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't sit in first class compartments in, in, in trains. There were times when, they, when, when the British army decided to be brutal toward them, they were savage in a way that is just almost un unimaginable. And yet the, 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 the length and the depth of the contact created a situation where there was an appreciation of English liberal values and in English, English liberal civilization. And there was a deep appreciation of that. There was, however, however, a deep resentment that was not being offered to Indians. You know, so it was, it, in a sense, the, the, somebody like my father's view would be that everything was, you know, there was every, there were wonderful things about England, and he very much would have believed in a kind of Whig history where Britain had come become the most advanced and civilized country in the world, but that, you know, India was not being Indians were not being offered that, and that and then so what you see as a result is when the Brits leave, exactly as you say, there's a lot of those values, a lot of those practices are maintained. Now, I will say. I think that was true for a kind of educated upper middle class elite who had a very extended contact. You see it fading now with the rise of a much more indigenous elite 
much more schooled in Hindi and in, 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 you know, kind of in some ways more authentically Indian than probably my, my father's generation. You're seeing this everywhere. You see it in Turkey. The, the secular elite is dying to be replaced by a more, you know, kind of homegrown one. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, one of the, one of the great achievements of the British Empire was to, to, to spread a certain kind of liberalism, you know, classical liberalism around the world in a way that I, I, I myself, as a classical liberal, think was very beneficial. Yes, I, I, even if it was pursued with the worst of motives, not all the time, but a lot of the time, and was inflicted with terrible violence, there was something about that liberal democratic, as well as socialism in the 40s, 30s and 40s, and independence came under the, the, the socialist government in Britain. Uh, you know, my, fa- as my, opposed my, to my father was in, was a, he was a poor kid, he was an orphan. He gets to, to London on a scholarship in 1944. He goes to London to get his, he goes to get a law degree. He's called to the bar, you know, trained as a barrister, and he gets a PhD uh, at the School of Oriental and African Studies. He started out studying with Harold Lasky at the LSE and then moves. Really? And moves. He spends five years. He gets a, I, I always think about this when I was in grad school. He, he spent five years in London on a scholarship and he gets a law degree. He gets a PhD. And he works full time for David Astor at the Observer as a foreign correspondent. He covers the he, he follows the, the 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 Allied armies as they would conquer, went around conquering Europe, and he, he and because he was an Indian subject, you know, he was a British subject in the forty five election, he could vote. If you were in London as an as an Indian during the you know you could vote. So I asked him because he was a great Churchill fan. Oh, we had we had busts of Churchill. We had all the collected, you know, the usual history of the English speaking people, World War One, World War Two memoirs. And I said, so did you vote for Churchill? You had it. He said, oh, good Lord. No, of course not. I voted for Attlee, for Labour. And I said, why? He said, I said, because you admired Churchill. He said, yeah, I admired him as a, as a speaker, as a statesman. But it was very simple. A vote for Labour was a vote for Indian independence. A vote for, for Churchill right. was a vote for empire. Fascinating. And it's come full circle in ways that I think not many people have really absorbed yet. In the, in the, the current prime minister of the United Kingdom is from Indian immigrants. He's, not, he's kind of like you. He's a third culture kid, two steps removed from the Indian continent, although his Indian parents also went through Kenya and Tanzania on the way to the United Kingdom. And now he is running the country. I wonder what your father would have thought if he, he was told that not very, in, in not a very long time, in, within two decades, an Indian immigrant will be the prime minister of the United Kingdom. I think he'd be kind of gobsmacked. Am I wrong? He'd be gobsmacked, but he'd be thrilled. My, my father was a huge yeah. fan of the British. He was, to a fault, somebody who believed that, the, you know, as I said, the, he, they withheld those values from Indians, but they had great values. He once said to me after he came back from America, you know, and this is a point which I was studying in America. He said to me, you know, the English are still the most civilized people in the world. And I said to him, what are you talking about? They're civilized. They enchained you. They, he, he went to British jails. And, and, he told, and he said, yeah, but, you know, there's a, certain, there's a certain elegance with which they do things. And he was going on and on. So he would have been absolutely thrilled. And to have it happen... You know, in a country which did not seem, uh, until very recently, 
to be moving in that direction. I mean, this is something you you know better than I, Andrew, but Britain in the 70s was a place where you were seeing a massive backlash to Indian immigration. You know, Enoch Powell, member of parliament, for those of listening who don't know me, this is a guy who rocketed to fame on a on a speech in which he said, I, I see the Tiber foaming with blood, you know, predicting the fall of Britain like the fall of Rome, all because it had led in these these Indians. And from there to go to to this, I mean, I, I actually give David Cameron a lot of credit. I think Cameron is the guy who, you know how the the Republican Party never did do that soul searching after they after Mitt Romney's loss about what they should do to be more multicultural. I think Cameron did, and if you look at the Conservative Party post Cameron, they that's when you start you know really promoting all people from all backgrounds. I mean now it's not just Rishi. The extraordinary thing is if you look at the top fifteen people in the Conservative Party, like seven or eight of them have brown skin. Chairman of the party, the foreign secretary, and the home secretary. These the are mayor of London, minor yeah, officers. Yeah, the mayor of London. And the mayor of the London. The different... Priya Patel. I mean, you can go on and on, right? This is not tokenism. This is a whole, it's a, it's a kind of social revolution, I think. Also, of course, that a large number of the Indian immigrants were middle-class, industrious, wanted to make way for themselves. Natural Tory voters, were it not for prejudice, and we take that away, and I think you're right. Cameron was also the person who kind of lanced the homophobic boil yeah. in the Conservative yeah. Party by endorsing marriage. Early on, and emphatically, he also really committed the British Tory party to an environmental policy that is really quite yeah. remarkable yeah. in terms of its, it's, certainly its utter difference from, from the United States. I, I I find this arc from being a subject of a family, being a subject of the Raj to running the entire country that used to run the empire to be quite spectacular. And I I, I know we, I, he's not Obama in so many different ways. He's, he hasn't won an election. He hasn't really been tested in so many ways. But that, it hasn't really been an issue in Britain. The people don't really talk about it very much, but he's there. In fact, they're mainly attacking him because he's too wealthy or because his wife had nom-dom status and all the rest of it. Uh, even that, I think of it even as a, that is, in a sense, a story of in and of itself, because it's the story also of the rise of India as an economic world power. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the fact that you, you have this huge Indian company. That's why he's wealthy. It's not really because of the hedge funds that he worked at. That's all trivial in comparison. What the main thing is what he's inherited because of the the father-in-law who founded one of India's great tech companies, and that is a reminder. In, in it's company, called Infosys exactly, and it's a, it's a remarkable company, one of the most innovative, one of the most clean. The the the, the guy Narayan Murthy, his father-in-law, is one of the most admired businessmen in India. He's an extraordinary man, and. To me, that itself is also a story because, you know, I'll give you an example. I was mad about cricket when I was growing up. And all the money in cricket when I was growing up was in England, was in Britain. Because so Indian cricketers would desperately try to, to play in the county cricket leagues in, in, in England, play for Lancashire, Hampshire, you know, Surrey or something. Today, all the money, like 20 times more than that, is in this two-month thing that's held in India called the Indian Premier League. It is the, you know, it is everything. And every cricketer in the world 
wants to come to India and play for those six to seven weeks because they make more in those six to seven weeks in India than they do playing the, the rest of the year in their home countries. And the home countries being Britain, Australia, New Zealand, you know, these. So to me, that's another. Extraordinary, and the Caribbean. And the Caribbean. There's an extraordinary role reversal where, you know, the, the, the Britain, which once dominated this world, is not because, of course, you know, it's 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 massive advertising dollars. And in India, you've got one point two billion cricket fans. Right. And the crowds are yeah. huge, yeah. whereas there are over the long test matches and incredibly sleepy <laughs> games in rural England. Get, it's kind of it's kind of getting a little sparse in the crowds. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Let's, then, so you go to this this Anglican school to make your proper English gentleman, <laughs> as it were. By the way, that's a great joke that 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 Leon used to Leon Weaseltier used to make, which is this story of this Orthodox Jew in London who decides he really wants to assimilate. And so he decides to cut off his beard and get his hair cut. And he goes to Savile Row to get the full English gentleman outfit. So he gets the, the, the weekend, the, 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 the jacket, he gets the full white tie, he gets every single, the wing collars, everything. And finally, he's all dressed up in front of the mirror and he looks in the mirror and the tailor's there and he starts to weep. And the tailor says to him, you look splendid, sir. Why, why on earth would you be weeping? And he said, I'm weeping because we lost India. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a classic Leon joke. It's, uh, it's a good one. So then, but how did you get to Harvard? So, okay, one, one point just to clarify about the school, which I think is interesting, which is it was a, a, fa a fancy private school in India. But it was very middle class. In those days, the school fees were, in today's rough equivalent, would be, you know, two or three hundred dollars a semester. So it was stuff, you know, I mean, I had people in my in my class who were the children of accountants. Now, you couldn't be the you couldn't be the son of a peasant laborer or something. But it was it was in that sense quite, quite uh, egalitarian. I got to Harvard. It's funny that you think of me as I've gone to Harvard because that's where we met via Yale. When I was 18, Indian colleges were terrible. And, you know, people forget now they think of India in the way that I was describing it. The India I was growing up in was one of the poorest countries in the world. Per capita GDP in India when I was when I left, I think, was $200 per person per year. Just to give you a sense, it's now I think two. It's over two thousand, so it's it's ten times higher. It, there had just been this thing called the emergency, you know, the martial law in the Gandhi. So it was a bad. It was a terrible time politically. It was a bad time economically. The the, the, uh, the higher education sucked, you know, and and the American universities were offering full scholarships for the first time. And so my brother applied to Harvard. Got he got applied a bunch of places. He went to Harvard. I applied a bunch of places. I, I got into Yale, and I just fell in love. When I came to to Yale, I just absolutely adored it. I I, I was a weird kid, probably like you in high school. I was a I was I, I loved to read. I, I was okay at sports and all, but my but what I really loved to do was like really read the stuff we were being assigned. You know, we were doing the kind of British curriculum. So I, I was we were doing Julius Caesar and as you like it and you know dickens but i would really want to read them and everybody else was just like oh my god how do i get through this so i can be an engineer or a doctor and finally when i got to yale it was like there are more there are people like me here there are people who are fascinated by this stuff and 
I just fell in love with it. I, I was a history major at Yale. And then I had to figure out what to do. My mom was to keep urging me to become an international lawyer because she had that kind of Jewish mother element, which was, I know he likes international relations, but he's got to, he's got to pay the bill somehow. So it, it sounded good. And I discovered that there was no such thing as international law. So, you know, except at the UN. So I decided to apply for a PhD. And I wasn't sure what field to do it in, because I was more interested in history. But I had heard a lot about the government department at Harvard. And, you know, Kissinger went there and Brzezinski and Sam Huntington and McGeorge Bundy. So I have to confess, without doing a huge amount of research, I did part of the reason I wanted to get a PhD was it was the longest student visa you could get. And I knew I wanted to stay in America. And all the other ones, first of all, I couldn't get scholarships to law schools or things like that because they expected you to be able to pay. Is you got scholarships and you got this indefinite visa. So I get to Harvard and I'm absolutely thrilled. I found Harvard, you know, just, it was the most, more intellectual ferment than I've ever seen anywhere. I, I, I remember just going to random sessions with, you know, I mean, I remember hearing Simon Sharma lecture about the French Revolution and just being dazzled walking out, you know, because he had that way of being able to integrate art and culture and history and all. And, and he did it with incredible panache. And so I, that, so that was Harvard for me. You're a sucker for the English accent is what, what you're saying. But well, I will tell you, Andrew, I, I, I wonder why you got rid of yours. You had a beautiful English accent. I remember the first time I, I met you, I was the president of the Yale Political Union. You were the president of the Oxford Union. You invited me. I don't even know if you remember this. You invited me. I wrote, you, I wrote saying, I'm going to be in London. Can I come and visit? You said, come, there's going to be a debate. And I walk into the Oxford Union. Everybody is in white tie and tails, sipping sherry. And there is this very striking, handsome young man, Andrew Sullivan, holding forth on Margaret Thatcher's economic policy and, and you know, thoroughly supporting it. I still remember you were, you were mouthing some bullshit about M1, M2 monetary theory. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm busted. I, <laughs> I was a teenage Thatcherite. And yes, at those days, Oxford, I think it would be 83 that we're exactly. talking about. Exactly 83. It was a really very fervid time in British politics. It was Thatcher's first term going into re-election. My, my term of office arrived during the election, the second election, which screwed up a lot of my, my hopes for, for, for the term because no one could come speak. They were all busy campaigning, which is perfectly understandable, but it kind of screwed up my calendar. But Everybody um, thought you, yeah, were going I to be, you were going to be a British politician. Everyone thought you were, you yes. were sort of destined to be prime minister or foreign secretary or something like that. That was that was that was what I thought I was going to do in a way. And then I went to America, and my whole life changed as well. I never expected to fall in love with America the way I did. I was such a such a English Tory in so many ways, but I did. What was it about America that that America, not just Harvard and Yale, but America that 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 attracted you, that, that, that was so different that you, it, it felt worth living your life here? That's a great question, because so much of it for me was bound up with Harvard and Yale. But I think it's the openness, the sense of possibility, mm -hmm. the sense that you mm -hmm. could just be yourself in a way and not have to worry mm -hmm. about 
about where you came from, what what religion you were, what caste you were. What I think that there's a kind of extraordinary openness about the country. I I, I, I always loved. I was a, I, I I liked Reagan because I for all kinds of reasons. And one of the things that he said that I always remember is he said, in America, we don't care about your origins. We care about your destination. And I thought well, it was a lovely line, sadly not really true on the right anymore. But but that was it was that sense of possibilities. Yeah. And when you come from countries which were asked you always, where are you from, as opposed to where are exactly. you going? It was it, it was an incredible breath of fresh air. And it was completely contagious for me, all of that, because I would think I was just psychologically more comfortable in that kind of zone. The British system just kind of didn't work for me. And looking back, I think, you know, sometimes I think, well, could I have done that? Would I have been knifing Boris in the back in the last <laughs> two weeks if that had happened? Because Boris was there just after me. He was the president of the unit two years later, I think, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, you make these decisions quite young and you're not quite sure what the consequences will be, but you have to trust your gut, really. And, uh, yeah, I think I would have been thoroughly chewed up and spat out by the British tabloid <laughs> press, don't you? It was bad enough the Oxford press were really going for me. But uh, me, what, for me, knows what in, would have in a way, it was easier because I'd seen my father as a politician. And I had seen the, mm. the, the ups, but I had also seen the price. And one of the things mm. I, rem I, I think at some point I began to realize this, I, I don't think I ever consciously realized it, was that as a politician, you really do not have a private life. And I don't mean that by the usual way that people mean everything is written about. I mean, you don't have real friends because politics is such a 24-7 business that your friends are your, are your political allies of the moment. And then when things change, they are not your friends anymore. I remember growing up, you know, having the, the feeling of like, wait a minute, we're going to summer vacation with X, but I thought Y was our best family friend. But turned out, you know, Mr. Y had now been dumped because my father had a new, you know, political alliance to make. And that would, and that sort of pervaded the way in which you approached private life. It was all a subset mm. of your political life. And I hated mm. that. And mm. it's, and, and, and it's true here as well. And, and if you go to Washington, you know this better than I do. I mean, it's everything, everybody's, all these politicians' friendships are all expedient. Yeah, it's, and and the ability to fake liking someone, the ability to fake all sorts of things all the time to please whoever you're around was just, I realized it was just something I was not, I was characterologically incapable well, of Well, you could do it very just, well yeah. for, for show because one thing I remember from Harvard is you were a fantastic actor. I saw you play Hamlet. I saw you play Amadeus. You played Mozart in Amadeus and you were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, in, in that in particular, I think you did Equus. I didn't. I didn't see that. I did Equus. Yeah. yeah. You, no, I, I. I was the kid in. Yeah, I remember you very well. You were you were a bigger figure at, at Harvard, I think, than than you realized. Well, the acting was great. I loved acting, and uh, yeah, it's one of the things that when I'm on my deathbed, I will be. It's one of the things I played Hamlet. It's just, it's just, it's just it's just great civilizational achievement and it was a lot i can't imagine learning all that all those lines but yeah i realized and that was something i thought i might want to do and it's some something i had in my head from the very beginning but the process of 
going through all that did me that I could not do it because I just found other actors intolerable. <laughs> they were just the worst people. I just, they drove me crazy. The sheer narcissism, the endless inane emotionalism, <laughs> the, the neuroticism, the vanity, all this stuff. It just, and I, 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 was, I can't, I cannot live my life among actors. Uh, <laughs> that's what I would have to do. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that. So you so the other thing I thought was journalists are much more, kind of, much more normal bourgeois people. I mean, they're, they're sort of much more regular, I think. Yeah. Well, when I when I first went into journalism, it was like you know, in the Daily Telegraph in the eighties, it was it was old, totally old school, like totally old school. It's like in those days, the newsroom was the place where you heard the most outrageous <laughs> things, the most scandalous things all the time, all thrown around. As opposed to today, where it's the place you're least yeah. likely to hear anything outrageous or scandalous today. It is, it is a place of near pure, puritanical quietude. I go into these offices and you, and maybe it's, it's partly techn yeah. tech they, they, technology. They're like insurance companies. In the old days, you heard the clack, clack, clack of the, the linotype. But you also heard the yelling and the arguing and the, and the fighting and the laughing and the jokes. And everyone in the Daily Telegraph, as I could tell, was half sozzled by, by two in the afternoon anyway. And the, <laughs> the immensely long liquid lunches that I had to try and keep up with were quite staggering. And the sheer level of, of, of functional alcoholism in England is really quite how staggering. Do people, but, uh, how do people, I never understood this, how did people work after a three martini lunch or the equivalent? I once asked the deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph, how on earth after about a bottle of champagne and what I could see were three scotches, <laughs> he was, it was four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and I said, Peter, how on earth are you writing an editorial after three scotches and a bottle of champagne. He said, my dear boy, I couldn't begin to write an editorial of the Daily Craft without three <laughs> scotches and a bottle of champagne. It was, and that was it. And he did produce them. I mean, it, 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 I couldn't, I just couldn't hack it in terms of the drinking. Anyway, moving, moving right along. When we were at Harvard, this, it was the sort of peak of the Cold War. Right? Yeah. It was, it was midterm Reagan. It was, we were about to confront the astonishing and to everyone in that government department, surprising collapse of the Soviet Union, which they hadn't seen coming. Was there anyone at the government department that really influenced you? I mean, I mean, Sam Huntington was still was still teaching then. I mean, but I took a class with him. He was terrific. Um, obviously, in my case, Harvey Mansfield was my my sort of mentor. Michael Sandel was also a really wonderful teacher. Was there anyone there that kind of made you decide you wanted to go into foreign policy as a permanent sort of field of inquiry and expertise? I think I had already decided that. I was, you know, my, my mm -hmm. advisor at Yale was Paul Kennedy, the, the historian who does that kind mm. of thing. Huntington, though, was my biggest influence by far. Sam Huntington was, and he was a huge influence both intellectually, but, but also in a kind of personal way. Intellectually, because Sam really believed in sort of asking the biggest questions. He always said that most academics had an instinct for the capillary and that they needed an instinct for the jugular, you know, that you should be, you should be asking what, what is the biggest problem out there in the world? What is the, you know, what is the most interesting solution, you know, a, a way to think about it? Not some little minor, you know, studying basket weaving in, in, in Southern African villages. I mean, he, he thought all that stuff was silly he, because he thought you have a chance to try to help people understand 
the biggest things going on in the world and the biggest things that have gone on, you know, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, World War One, World War Two, whatever it is. And he would take those on with gusto. He was also a man of extraordinary integrity, a real old fashioned liberal, really stuck to his guns from when when he was attacked by the left or the right. Very honorable man, very he, and a work ethic that was crazy. It's probably because of the reason Watching him is the reason I didn't become an academic. Sam would get up. He, he lived on Beacon Hill, as did I. So I'd occasionally see him. He would get up at about 6, 6.30 in the morning. He'd go down to the basement of his, of his brownstone on Beacon Hill, and he would work on his next book. And he wouldn't emerge until about 10. And then he would take the subway into Boston. And his, and his argument to me was, you've got you to begin your day by doing the really important thing that God put you on earth for. After that, you can do all the teaching of classes and committee meetings and all that. And that discipline, and I, I realized to be a great academic, you need some version of that discipline. And I realized that I was intellectually curious, I was pretty bright, I was pretty hardworking, but I didn't have that self-discipline. I needed the mm. deadlines. And when I, would, when, I, when I did journalism, I was like, I love the fact, you know, and I, I, and look, it's been now, what, 24 years I've written a column. And I've had to pull up and shoot every week, basically. You know, I'm in a few weeks off for Christmas and things like that. But I can do that. But I, I can't do what, what Huntington did, which is without a deadline, just every th three to four years produce another great book. What do you think of Clash of Civilizations as a book, as a, as a, a predictor? Because, again, when we were there, the Cold War was ending. And we didn't really know what was going to replace it. And there was this liberal internationalist idea of a unipolar world. I remember publishing Charles Krauthammer's essay on that, which kind of framed a lot of the discourse among neoconservatives and to some extent neoliberals. And it seemed definitely in the 90s as if we were, ed were headed to a sort of perpetual, to Kant's perpetual peace at some level. And liberal democracy was thriving everywhere. And it was what Frank Fukuyama has pointed out. But Huntington demurred and, and thought that the core, deep philosophical, cultural, civilizational differences between various parts of the world would reemerge and clash. He was denounced for this. He was, he was, it was a highly controversial book. Looking back in respect of China's challenging of the world order in terms of what happened with Islam in the following two or three decades, which was also a, another civilizational front line. And now you have this a civilizational front line within the West itself between the modernizers and the, the sort of reactionaries, as it were. How, how, when you look back at that book, I mean, I don't know how long ago you read it. It's been a while for me. What did you, what did you make of it? Do you think that he should deserve credit for, for seeing some of this emerge or, or was he too gloomy? So I have a funny history with it because I, at the end of my, toward the end of my time as a grad student, I went to Sam and I said, I've been offered the job of managing editor of foreign affairs and I'm going to take it. And he said to me, you're making a terrible mistake. You're going, you would be a great academic. I, I think I could get you a, a, a slot at Harvard next year. He had al already told me that earlier. And so I had, I'd sort of, I'd known that, that he'd been trying to get me an assistant professorship at Harvard. And, and I said, my mind's made up, but you know what? You had sent me a, a, a couple of months ago, you sent me an essay for my comments called The Clash of Civilizations. Can I take it with me and can I publish it in Foreign Affairs? So it was the first issue that I edited at Foreign Affairs and I made it the lead article. 
It was the first time Foreign Affairs had ever done a lead article. It had normally been more like an academic journal with the articles just listed. So I have a personal history behind that. And by the way, at the time, I disagreed with it more than I do now, but I still thought it was just brilliant. I mean, if you read the essay, it's dazzling. Just as a as a rhetorical piece, it is it is masterfully written. He had that wonderful, bold, declarative way of writing English sentences short. You know, it's, it was kind of Orwell, but with a kind of, with cadences, which ended up leaving, you know, ending with a bang. Look, he understood something. You said it yourself. The core of what he understood was incredibly powerful and insightful and incredibly un, unpopular at the time, which was that we had gone through an age in which everyone defined their political identity by their economic interests or their ideological affinity. And he said, the age of economics and ideology is over. We are in an age where people are going to define themselves. Their core sense of political identity is going to be from culture and more specifically from religion. And that was, to me, the most powerful insight. Uh, in the, you know, And if you think about not just war and peace, but voting and the way in which the world has gone in so many places. It's a, it was a, it's an it's incredibly profound insight. Then to say that look, you're going to have places which just resist the the kind of end end of history, Kant's perpetual peace world, and Islam is going to be very deeply opposed to that. Again, you know, he foreshadowed exactly that rejectionism that came out of the Middle East. Then China as being this very different civilization. He got a bunch of things wrong, I think, in the sense that he thought that these civilizations would act as coherent units, monolithic coherent units, or, you know, almost like the old common term and clash against each other. Whereas actually what was happening in the Middle East was a big civil war within the world of Islam between the the liberals, the moderates, the Shias, the Sunnis, the the you know the the uh, secularists, if you want to call them that, the fundamentalists. You 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 know you see. I mean, in that, in a way, you know, he forgot the power of realpolitik. You know, if you think about the history of Europe, the you know the uh, Richelieu, the great Catholic statesman of Europe, used to make common cause with the Protestants all the time. He even made common cause with the with the mu- Muslims, the Turks. So that world, in a sense. He, he he neglected because he got so he's got so caught up with the with, with his new theory. I think it happens to all of us. But in a way, you know, you, you need to make to make your point clear. Sometimes you have to do that. The, one of the editors of The Economist had a very funny two rules of journalism. He said, simplify and then exaggerate. <laughs> and so if you if you think of if you think of the clash of civilizations as somewhat simplified and exaggerated, it still contains within it one of the most powerful insights to help us understand the modern world. Because we were leaving a world in which, whether you were a communist or whether you were an anti-communist, was the key organizational principle. We still have never, still never come back to that world, Andrew, that you and I grew up in, where ideas mattered because the shape of the world was being affected by those ideas, you know? Whether a country in Africa or a country in Central America went communist or capitalist was a, was a signal of the direction of history. You know, so ideas had this kind of profound world historical consequence. And when we left that, we didn't know what, where we were going. I remember thinking, well, this will be an era of 
nationalism because that's the natural recourse in terms of meaning. I think, and then of course we we thought nationalism might revive, but also we had this. Everyone seemed to have this confidence that globalization would kind of homogenize and would. And although globalization has lifted living standards astonishingly in in parts of the world which really desperately needed them, and I I don't think that that should be in any way dismissed. The logic of free trade is still very potent in terms of its ability to raise people out of poverty. But we kind of underestimated the disruptions of globalization and also, I think, underestimated the cultural impact of mass immigration and of mass unemployment and of insecurity in the West. And and also the things that we said, the things that he loved about the you know, growing up, like those old hymns, and the, 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 even if they weren't believed in, they created some sort of structure of meaning that gave people some satisfaction. And all that stuff has been kind of wiped away by the forces of global capital. And and this is the paradox, really, of the right, which is that they we promoted an economic liberalization and globalization, which mitigated against the very conservative values that we that we socially kind of wanted to support. You know, this is Daniel Bell's Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, another brilliant man I was honored to to be taught by at Harvard. Tell me your response to that. Are you surprised by how deep in the West has been the the resistance to globalization in the last 10 years, the beginning of a revolt really from below against some of these globalizing shifts? Yeah, I have been surprised. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a classical liberal. I like these trends. I like the freedom. I like the autonomy. I like the individualism. I like the prosperity it produces. And you put it very well. And and in describing all the, the problems, many of those problems are manageable. So, for example, the disruption. Obama gave a very good speech about this, where he said, you know, every time we sign a, a free trade agreement, we say, look, we know that both of us are going to be better off with more trade. It's going to lift more boats. But we know that it causes a lot of disruption and a lot of pain to certain sectors, certain segments of the community. And we have to help those people. And then we never do on any serious scale. And we go on and sign the next free trade agreement. You know, So part of the problem here was we, we kind of knew that there was this problem, but we never could reconcile ourselves to really doing what it took. So that's point one. Point two, I think I wasn't, I I should have been more aware of how immigration, which is the kind of globalization you see and feel viscerally, would would affect people. Because, you know, in Northern Europe, for example, where they have strong welfare states, there is no backlash against trade. There is no China shock and none of that, because they've, they've provided a lot of support systems and they've provided the retraining, even in Germany, for example. The Germans spend 20 times as much on apprenticeship programs as we do. And as a result, they have, you know, they have a much more stable you know, economy in, in, in that sense, in that, you know, which is not the only part of it. But but immigration, I was surprised by. I'm surprised by the degree to which it, it has scared people. It has made them feel like the, the, the country is no longer one they, under, they understand it. And, you know, it's for all the reasons we, we understand. The part that I don't know what to do with is it's at the end of Fukuyama's book, The End of History. He talks about how in a world without this kind of great ideological clashes, we're going to face this this great dilemma, which is 
people will not know what to live for. They will be men without chests. They, they, they will lack the themos, the sort of this ancient Greek word, which means something sort of like pride and a sense, you know, McCain used to talk about, John McCain, about how you wanted to, to live a life in which you were doing, you were dedicated to causes larger than yourself. And, you know, back to those hymns, I mean, the, the structure of meaning that people have taken from religion, from community, from tribe is very powerful. And it, it is, in a sense, it answers that question about what is the end, what is the purpose of, of life? Liberals have no answer to that question, De, you know, almost by design. What we're saying is, we, do, we want you to figure that out. We don't want to have, we don't want there to be an Ayatollah or a Pope or a, who tells you the answer to that question. You, the whole joy of liberalism is that, you, you know, it is about how, how to organize the public space. How you find salvation, that's your private affair, buddy. But guess what? People do, people can't live like that. People need, <laughs> they need that cause, they need that structure. And that's the hardest one, because I don't know the answer to that problem. And until I think we have an answer to that problem, liberalism and liberal democracy will always be very fragile, because there's always going to be somebody comes along and says, I have the answer. You know, and that answer, that, that particularly if you're a demagogue, it does have a certain s s kind of siren appeal. My own feeling is that because I, too, basically a classical liberal and also historically had have had no problem with immigration, thought it was a great benefit in many ways to most societies and personally I'm particularly fond of multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic situations. That's where I live. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, but I recognize too, I'm not normal yeah. in that sense. That the, the vast majority of people prefer stability to their identity and meaning. And Britain's an interesting case because Britain is a liberal country deep down. It's not. It's not. A, it, 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 it's, it's strange. It's deep strain of live and let live has, has been there for many, many years. But the sheer pace and volume of the immigration is what has the, the number of people coming to the UK. And I think this is, this is just like in 2015, which is one among the peak periods, was greater than the number of immigrants to Britain from 1066 to 1950. So right. you in right. one year, so you have this extraordinary influx, like 40% of Londoners were not born in England. That's kind of, that makes sense for New York, and it's always been the case for New York. But New York's an entrepot of this vast continent in which people can find the different ways. It's actually the center and, and, and the place where so much happens in Britain. And people felt like it was no longer something they recognized. I just, I just think the pace of it yeah, yeah. Is, is the but, key. But, but, but uh, here's the question, Andrew, which is, I totally agree with what you're saying. But you notice that in places like London or New York, People are very comfortable with immigration, with immigrants, because they they know them. They you know, the place where the fear you know is 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 strongest is not in London. It's in Shropshire, or it's in you know it's even further north. The, the place where people fear immigrants is is places in America where there are very few immigrants, like rural Ohio or Pennsylvania or places like that. So that's part of the paradox: is it is a kind of imagined fear. Yes. Absolutely. But it's a, it's a different kind of, it's not a fear that comes out of everyday experience, particularly, although there might be moments when people feel 
weirded out by stuff they haven't ever seen before. It comes from this general sense of the meaning of my life has kind of been altered. The meaning yeah, of my country yeah. is different. And that makes me insane. Look, 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 and you know, so one of the wisest people you and I studied when we were at Harvard was Burke, right? Edmund Burke, who always believed, people forget he's now seen as the kind of high priest of conservatism, but he was not. He was a liberal. He was in favor of the American Revolution. He was viciously opposed to British excesses of power in, in, in India. If you look at Burke's collected words, literally half of it is the trial of Warren Hastings, the governor general of India, whom he thought was you know, corrupt and, and abused authority. But in the case of the French Revolution, he thought this is going too far, too fast, too much disruption. And, and that's the, you know, it's finding that balance where without, yeah. without moving forward, and I still do believe it is moving forward, you know, you have stagnation. But if you move too far forward, you rupture the fabric of, of, of society. I mean, what Burke was doing was calling his own country to account to live up to its liberalism, right. Right. its old values. In a way, I think that the actual the actual American revolutionaries were also rather conservative Entirely. revolutionaries Entirely. In, in as much as they were demanding that Britain live up to its own principles as opposed to junk them all together. And the, revo the French Revolution was something utterly different. Right. The American Revolution is not really a revolution. It was a, it was a demand for the return to the traditional rights of Englishmen that they had always been yes. granted. It was not year zero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was not everything yeah. is wiped out and the church is finished and we're going to get rid of all our established authorities. For people and who that's... don't get your reference, we should say that what the Jacobins did was they, they restarted the calendar and, and said, why are we starting it with the birth of Christ, whom we don't believe is actually a divine figure? And they would date things from the, the, the year of the French from Revolution. That moment. Year one, year two, year three. The, you can find graffiti still in, in, in Paris where... They have, you know, year five. <laughs> and, it's a... and the key thing to say about Burke's response to it was that it was not afterwards. It was before the worst yeah. happened. In other words, it was he, he was saying the concept of this is right. wrong. Not that the practice of it is wrong, but the very concept behind this is violating. But that balance between being essentially a classical liberal, but being a conservative in its implementation and seeking to balance it with social stability, with, with some kind of a meaning for a country, that has become, which is basically my position. Yeah. So I talk about the pace of immigration, the need to reassure people that it's under control, because if they don't think it's under control, they will panic. And they, yeah. if, as David Frum, our other colleague at Harvard almost yeah. years ago said, you know, if liberals don't enforce borders, fascists will. But that position is so vulnerable now. I mean, it's like 12 of us believe in it. And, 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 and there's been this move towards the anti-immigrant right and then the almost pathological view that immigrants should be more encouraged than citizens and that there is no distinction to be made and that there should be really completely open season on the borders. And that's, that's that, that dichotomy, which is where we're at. every single question where one takes some kind of nuanced view is first of all, demonized as being one or the other. And secondly, the ability of that to win politically in this polarized climate has become close to impossible. It's even, it's, I think it's even broader than that. The liberal project turns out to be a very fragile one because, again, it's really all about rules, about process, not about outcome, right? It's saying we want to have democracy because we want to have a process that is fair. We have free speech because we want to have a process. We're not saying the best man will win. We're not saying the best idea will emerge. 
but we believe that this is the be- this is the best system because we don't have a monopoly of virtue or truth. Well, it turns out that actually not a lot of people believe that. There are a lot of people on the right who say, no, 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 we know what the answer is, and we'd be happy to cheat on elections and destroy the entire framework of democracy as long as we can get our way. And then there are people on the left, and this is a lesser problem, but but it really is true that you have the tension. There are people who say, look, the big problem is we don't have you know enough minorities represented, or we don't have things like that, and we will break the system of of this fair system just to achieve the outcome we want. So we don't want free speech if it means th- that kind of speech. We don't want an, an, a, you know, a, a race-neutral admissions process if it means that you have too few minorities. So, so it turns out this, this very fragile system that says, guys, we don't have a, you know, we're not going to guarantee you the outcome. We're just going to guarantee you fair play, due process, free speech. It's very fragile. It is. And I, I think it helps to understand that liberalism was only, only credible because it was an alternative to civil war. I mean, yeah. that's how it yeah. emerged because people had the experience yeah. Yeah. of religious yeah. civil war in their own countries in which the desire to seek the absolute destroyed the civil yeah. peace and created this hideous back and forth between various sectarian governments. And it was the the willingness and the decision to sort of get away from that because it was destroying our lives that uh, that led to it. The further away you get from yeah, that experience, yeah, yeah. the more you take for granted yeah. what it doesn't allow. But but the idea that we didn't always believe this, that we weren't discussing in political theory in the 80s how vulnerable yeah, liberalism yeah. was, is, is untrue. We were. We were absolutely obsessed with it. I want to move to a couple of questions before I, so we get on some substantive issues today, sure. <laughs> which is Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Let's let's start there. I am of the, I'm in the news, I guess I don't want to call this nuance, it sounds self-praising, but the complicated position that of course we can't tolerate Putin's violation of international borders. But nor can we continue this war forever without serious damage that there's cost to this in Europe as a whole and the world as a whole that will at some point reach a critical moment where people are going to say, why are we freezing to death because because of the Donbass, which we never heard of until six months ago. Who's, what's going to be, how does this end, Farid? Let's, let's just think about How does it end? So let me start by telling you why I'm a little bit more tough-minded about this than you, because I, I do think we're at a really extraordinary moment where the international system that really has been built by the United States since the end of World War II, that is really a remarkable system that has achieved more peace and stability and prosperity than any 75-year stretch of history that you can look at, literally in human history, including the Roman Empire, you know, and a period when you've had not just, you know, no, no great power wars, no massive annexations by force, none of that. You, you've allowed for the creation of a larger global economy that has, as you say, lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. All these things have been managed. It's not perfect, but hell of a lot better than anything we've had before. We are moving into a very fundamental transition because that system was largely built on American power. At the end of the day, the U.S. was the guarantor. So, you know, you look at something like nuclear nonproliferation. 
the reason we have had so little nuclear non-proliferation is not because everybody signed an NPT treaty. It's because the power of the United States to say, if you do this, you know, you will, there will be a lot of sticks and uh, 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 that will come your way and there will be a lot of carrots withheld. And we were powerful enough that that mattered. Well, we, that power is waning and it's been waning, you know, really for 10 or 15 years now. And so can we stabilize the system in a way that still maintains some of these core elements, rule-based, liberal, liberal, liberalism-based, without American hegemony? And so Ukraine becomes a test case of whether or not you can put together a coalition of liberal states that are going to uphold this principle. Not, it's not just going to be the U.S. So it's the U.S., it's Europe, but it's even Australia and Japan and Singapore. So I think it's important that we not yield on the principle, and I know you agree with that. So I would be, I, I would really want to, you know, I, that is where we want to end. We want to end with the lesson that this, this does not work. I'm a little bit more willing to push and push hard. Russia is being isolated. They are suffering a huge cost. Now, what you're expressing is the absolutely inevitable reality that this, there has to be a negotiation at some point. It is neither side is powerful enough to win completely. This is not this war is not going to end like World War II. And so what I would say to you is let the Ukrainians feel like they have achieved you know enough. Let let them push forward because they are pushing forward. Let's help them, you know, equalize the stakes a little bit. At some point they will realize that there is a kind of stalemate. I don't think it's going to come for the next few months. But I think sometime next year, there will be a realization. And at that point, you have to have a negotiation. And in those negotiations, we become very important because let's assume there's essentially a stalemate along, roughly speaking, what Russia took in 2014, 2015, but not what it has taken this year, that the Ukrainians are able to push back on much of that, though I don't think they'll be able to get all of it. And at that point, what the Russians want is a relaxation of sanctions. That we can give them, and so then the, the the you know the negotiation becomes what would it take to relax sanctions, and will the Russians be willing to give? You know, I think it's worth entering those negotiations, but I wouldn't want to do it at at any point that might seem to legitimize the conquest, the annexation. Not to mention the fairly brutal. I mean, if you look at the stories that are coming out, the Russians have engaged in. Practices that really are take you back to World War Two. I agree with you on every single thing you said. What troubles me is that any negotiation which would give away even a little bit of the Donbass back to Russia, especially after the atrocities that have been inflicted upon Ukrainians, is 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 never is always. If if any agreement finally comes to give Russia any gains from this. You've, 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 you've not achieved what you want. Now, I can see a solution whereby you say, okay, guys, you get Crimea, we'll recognize you have Crimea. We'll even give you a little land bridge into Crimea so there's, there's, there's something there. But the rest of Ukraine that you try to invade, no. I, I think that, yeah. that makes sense to me. I cannot see the Ukrainians ever agreeing to that. And also, I can't see Putin agreeing to it either. You, he's, he's the Donbass at least is what he would have to offer the country. So the most likely uh, outcome is exactly what you say, a frozen conflict where there's minor skirmishes that keep taking place, but largely dead, deadlocked and stalemated. 
the sanctions stay on against Russia for forever, essentially. I mean, I, just to play devil's advocate, what is so wrong? I mean, that's Russia's choice. They'll be isolated. Ukraine will try to build its economy on the two-thirds of Ukraine that exists. The world will move on, but Russia will become essentially a so, bit player oh, in the in the international economy. So, so I'm, I'm just going to... That... Russia would remain under sanctions if 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 it doesn't relinquish the Donbass. Right. I mean, I'm saying I agree with what you just said, which is you can't imagine okay. a settlement where the Russians don't give back most of the Donbass. And since Putin doesn't seem like he's going to, the corollary is the sanctions don't get lifted. So Russia stays under sanctions right. indefinitely. Ukraine tries to make its life. And, you know, neither side acknowledges the legitimacy of the other's so the Ukrainians still claim that the, all of Donbass and Crimea is theirs. The Russians claim it's theirs. In a sense, it's a little bit like the Baltic states during the Cold War. We claim that they were not, you know, a Soviet part of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union claimed they were. But it was a kind of frozen conflict. It was a deadlock. There was not, nothing. But how would this freeze? How would there be a ceasefire when both are still fighting over the Donbass? I think there'd be a de facto ceasefire, by which I mean... At some point, okay. the lines, you know, the Russians are fairly dug in, in some parts of the Donbass, the, the parts they took in 2014 and 15. It'll mm -hmm. be hard, I think, for the Ukrainians to, to, to take those. Look, what you're, the skepticism you're expressing is, I think, real. And what it reflects is this. The Ukrainians seem at this point that their war aims have expanded enormously because of the atrocities, because of... And so at some point, they're going to have to get more realistic. But I think they will. Look, this happens in every war. I mean, I, you know, we said we were going to fight to the end for, you know, for South Vietnam. We didn't. We, you know, there's at some point reality sets in. Okay. Well, that's I, I don't know how to interpret that. What do you think is going to happen this winter in Europe? I mean, the, the cost to Europe, it seems to me it's just horribly timed because you also have the post-pandemic yeah surge of basically supply and demand being screwed up globally for a while. And then because also of the sanctions on Russia, you also have soaring energy prices. We in America are not experiencing yeah, this at all, quite oh. the same way, barely at all. Europe, even those countries that are relatively independent of Russian gas, like the UK, the, the market is the same. They're getting clobbered by the same there's a limit here. I mean, the, the amount of subsidies that the, the European governments are now allocating to to subsidize people's energy needs and indeed industry's energy needs would indefinitely be suspended. The, the amount of debt that's being racked up at this point after the, the COVID debt too begins. And now you have rising interest rates that make that debt ever harder to pay off. You're going to have unemployment go up. You're going to have a recession. I can see people in Europe, you know, and, and I, I'm not trying to be a pro-Putin propagandist on this. I'm just worried that we might have miscalculated. Well, you know what? Um, one of the most heartening things about all this has been the, the solidarity of the Europeans and the sense that they are willing to pay a price. Look, they're very aware of all this. These are very responsive democracies. These, the, you know, the leadership knows what the people are thinking. Support for Ukraine is remarkably strong in places like Germany and France. And Germans have really paying a, a hell of a price. It's not as strong in Italy, but it's actually reasonably strong, which is why Maloney, the new prime minister, who clearly has inclinations in the other direction, came out very strongly in favor of Ukraine. I, I think we should, you know, in, a, in an odd way, the, the kind of liberal world order is being tested. And 
one thing I'm struck by is the degree to which people in Europe get it. People in Japan, Australia, South Korea get it. The Singaporeans, who are very interesting bellwether. First time in decades they've, they've supported sanctions that were not imposed by the UN Security Council. I think it actually may be the first time they've ever supported sanctions because they get that this is, you know, the, the, the alternative. Taiwan is also very yes, keen. Yeah, but Taiwan, of course. <laughs> For obvious reasons. Of course. But, but, but by the way, the Chinese are watching. So, you know, play that out the mm -hmm. other way. If, if mm -hmm. Europe were to crumble, if support for Ukraine collapses, if the Russians are able to move, move in, and remember, they would be able to. Russia is 10 times the size of Ukraine. The Russian defense budget is 10 times the size of Ukraine. Without the West, Ukraine would not be able to hold. Um, think about what that world looks like, right? Then and you have a Russia that is able to rewrite the rules and annex uh, a country. China would watch that. Almost certainly that would embolden it. Except, except for it, they can't. I mean, it turns out this great military machine could barely hold on to the Donbass. Well, the, yes, but, the, you know, remember the Russians, they have a long, I mean, think about them, World War II. They did disastrously for the first year. And then if you're willing to throw bodies at the problem, and if you throw men and material, and, you know, the, the Russians could do a lot of harm, and they could... They, but unlike the Second World War, they don't have as many men to throw at the problem. They're, they're in demographic, sharp demographic yeah, still, decline. They're in extreme economic decline. They're already using conscripts from the distant yeah, regions. Yeah. And the big thing they don't uh, have, which World War II had, they had was they had American money, which is, I mean, people right. forget. So look, right, but, but, but my point is we have a strategy that is likely to work because Russia is weak. It is getting weaker. Putin is, is, is being pressed. So, you know, let the, let the Europeans, you know, the, the Europeans are not, are not blinking yet. Why, why are you, Andrew Sullivan, blinking for them? The Ukrainians are still willing to well, die for this. You know, at some point, you're right, though the realities you talk about will assert themselves. But let's keep as much pressure as we can on the Russians for as long as we can. <laughs> All right, I will. Sh I will shut up about this. I will stop worrying. The other major global event since since we since the end of the Cold War, it seems to me, has been what's happened in China, which at first was this kind of extraordinary, from Deng Xiaoping on, open liberalization, and then, of course, the the slow regression and now rather fast regression to what appears to be an almost Mao-like structure in which she is utterly unquestioned in control of everything and, and, ex and extreme nationalism rising to the fore, as well as considerable economic difficulties occasioned by their, to my mind, insane COVID policy. How, is, China, is China a real threat? How do, we, how do we assess that threat now in 2022? It seems to me that that we probably misjudged it all a long time ago. I mean, that we had arguments at the time. Is integrating China into the world economy, is that going to help democracy or not? And old school liberals said, no, it won't. That don't, this is, there's not a connect, there's not a causation here. You could have a very effective totalitarian system within a re relatively open economy, at least for a considerable time. Others said, no, it's going to work the other way. It did for a while work the other way. Now it seems to be reverting to a different model and their economic power is such that this could be a very dangerous new 
dictatorial power in charge of definitely having an impact on world events and not committed to the liberal international order in the way that, that, that you think we need to be. Yeah, I think this is without any question the central challenge that we face in, in international relations, which is, you know, to put it very simply, what to do about China. And I think you described it exactly right. They, when, they, when they started liberalizing, they, they were liberalizing economically, they were liberalizing politically, and they were quiescent on the world stage. It was, a, it was a real package deal. I mean, people forget what Mao's China was in terms of supporting every crazy revolutionary movement in the world, from Che Guevara to, the, you know, to, the, to, to Angola to all over Southeast Asia. And I think it's, it's important to point out that, that that reaching out, that search to integrate them, which largely was about triangulating versus the Soviet Union, that did work in the sense that the, you know, China stopped supporting all those revolutionary causes. They stopped. They were the world's leading rogue state in the 1970s when Kissinger and Nixon went and, and, and made the opening to China. And they really became remarkably integrationist. They became part of the UN that they had always denounced. They became part of all these global bodies. They started to move in all the directions. That So I think it's important to point out that it's not that it didn't work. It, it, it worked for many decades. You got 30, 35 years of a China that was not outside the system, not, not you know trying to tear it down, but actually quite integrationist. Something has changed in the last 10 years. Some people will say it was inevitable that as they became rich and powerful, they became, they became arrogant. Some will say it's more about Xi and this group of people who have come to power. But be, be that as it may, we face what we face. And I would say that the greatest challenge we face is how do we deter China, but not in a way that we ourselves accelerate the disintegration of the international system. Because at the end of the day, to take the second largest economy in the world, and if you were to totally decouple, you would essentially end up with a deglobalization. You would end up with a completely different world, two hermetically sealed economic blocks. You know, you would, you would end up in a very suboptimal world. It's, ve it's very different from Russia. China is simply too big a player to say, oh, yeah, we can just marginalize them ad infinitum. So the challenge, it seems to me, is it, it's a, it's very much the kind of challenge European powers had in the 19th century. Britain and Germany, for example, were the two strongest trading partners in Europe, and yet they had a military rivalry. And for a while, it was manageable when Bismarck was, was running Germany, because he was a man, he was an instinctive, moderate, cautious, never wanted to go too far. The British, by nature, were always that way. So there was a way in which a modus vivendi was possible. Then comes Wilhelm II, the, the, the new German Kaiser, fires Bismarck, decides he's got to show his stuff, wants to build this enormous navy to rival the British navy. It's all about you know, showing off. It's all about, I mean, just to give you a sense of how idiotic it was, he built this enormous navy for Britain, uh, for Germany. Massive, you know, destroyed the German budget. It never left port in the entire world of all of World War I because the British just blockaded it. And so this, you know, so it, it's, it was so much a show of support. So the question is, are we in a moment like that where we are deeply interdependent, but there are these growing military rivalries and suspicions? I think that there is a way to manage it. I don't think we have to return to World War I. I think that we also have to recognize while all the things you said are true, it is a illiberal, dictatorial country, 
it has not been particularly expansionist on the world stage. And we have to ask ourselves, what is a, what is a level of political influence that is okay for the second largest economy in the world to have? I mean, it can't be that we say nothing is, you know, we declared the Monroe Doctrine in the United States in 1824 when we were, you know, not even the top 10 in, the, in terms of the economies of the world. So when the Chinese say we need, a, we need to be more influential in the South China Seas, or I, I think we have to come up with some affirmative answer rather than just always saying everything the Chinese do is crossing, you know, is a bridge too far, is a line. You, 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 you sound dangerously close to saying that the second largest economy in the world should have some sphere of influence in It's dangerously close to that. I hope we don't live in a world that is, that is, that is structured like that. But let me put it to you this way, Andrew. You know, we think it is entirely our right for the United States Navy to run, to run around you know, through the Taiwan Straits, in the South China Seas, around the East China Seas, everywhere, and we we get very angry when the Chinese show any umbrage of that about that. The Chinese don't you don't sail ships in the Gulf of Mexico. They don't ship, sail ships through the Panama Canal. They don't ship say right. So, in some sense, they don't still have a military base in Taiwan the way that we still do in right, Cuba. Right. So so. All I'm saying but is, here's the thing. I agree with you, Farid, but Taiwan is... No, it's, 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 if, it's a very, if they don't have Taiwan, what is the sphere of influence? I mean, that's that's that was part of their country. They still regard it as part of their country. They're, so the, I, it seems to me the logical conclusion from your from that analysis is that they should have no, Taiwan. I'd say, what I would say is this. I, I think I, I, I would say with Taiwan, it is the hardest problem in international relations. We have managed to solve it for 50 years by, by this fiction that each side thinks that, you know, it's all, it's all a kind of masterful kabuki, but it has kept the peace. So our, our goal should be that we, we maintain this. The Taiwanese are happy with that. The Chinese sort of seem happy. And if they're not happy with that, then they're the ones who are disrupting the status quo. But, but hmm. why not, rather than say, you know, I don't want to give the Chinese a Taiwan, but I don't want to support Taiwanese independence because I think that would then trigger this enormous c conflict. So, so all, all I'm saying is we should be aware that we we do have a sphere of influence. It's called the world. <laughs> and, you know, that and I'm OK with that because I do think actually the liberal order rests a lot on American hegemony. And even though it's waning, I'd like it to stay in some in some form, because it is better than anybody else's hegemony. And by the way, one of mm -hmm. the most beneficial things to come out of all this chaos and tension in the world right now is people are realizing, you know what? The United States may not be the worst Juman in the world. You know, th there are things worse than American hegemony. They're called Russian hegemony. They're called Chinese hegemony. And I think if you look at the Pew survey, the numbers for anti-Americanism have plummeted. And I don't think, honestly, it's because Joe Biden has the most winning personality in the world in the way that when Obama became president, some of it was because of his personality. I think it's that people are being confronted with the alternative. And I think, you know, in, in a way, that's the, that, that's the thing that gives me hope. We're living in difficult times, but one of the things that gives me hope is, whether it's domestically or internationally, people are seeing what the alternative to liberalism is, to liberal democracy is, to liberal hegemony is. And it's not pretty. 
and it's not a world people want to live in. They've gotten so used to living in this this world, they we all take it for granted. But I think you're suddenly realizing, you, you know what? A few things change, and we could be in a very different world. And th- that would not be the kind of world that I would feel that comfortable in. Farid, thank you for affirming me and my classical liberalism, even though I have severe worries <laughs> about where it's going and the reaction that's happening to it and whether we need to sort of be a little bit more pragmatic in addressing it. But I, I you know, I don't think we're that far apart, to be honest with you. I, I get a little, I guess I just get a little irritated by the, the Ukraine fanatics. There's going to have to be, at some point, some, some resolution to this. And to quote Obama, Russia is always going to have more interest in that part of the world than the United States or Europe. It's just a fact of geography and history. But yeah, I think you 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 make a good case for mud- kind of muddling through for a bit and managing. Well, and one thing I would managing yeah, these. Standards. One thing I would add to 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 that Obama line is, you have to remember part of what's being played out here is this is the last multinational empire in the world trying to hold on to its last great colony. And it's not going to work, just as the French could not hold on to Algeria. So you don't want to be on the wrong side of this, in my view, both both from a moral point of view, but even just practically politically. Then they're not going to be able to hold on to it. So we, we are going to have to find a way forward, recognizing that at the end of the day, the Ukrainians do not want to be dominated by the Russians. And yes, it's right very close to Russia, and the Russians have more interest than we do. But you know who also has a real interest in Ukraine's future? The Ukrainians. Farid, thank you so much, my old friend. It's been lovely growing old with you, (laughs) seeing the two of us kind of follow each other down the years. And this was a a lovely conversation. And and thanks for being so candid and, and, and clear and honest about it. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for coming on. It's a huge pleasure, Andrew. Your friendship means the world to me. And I hope one of these days you'll go back to acting, maybe Provincetown, maybe, maybe, maybe Hamlet in drag in Provincetown. I'll be the first non-binary Hamlet. How about that? That'll, that'll, that'll win a lot of people. Next week, just after the elections, we have Damon Linker, a wonderfully eclectic and interesting writer, and see how he interprets whatever the results are. I, you know, I don't know what to make of what's going to happen. I mean, part of me thinks there's going to be a pretty massive red wave. Part of me has some doubts about that in certain places. But we're in for a rough ride. There's no question in the next couple of years. And we're not through the Trump era yet, I don't think, in any way. So these elections are going to be critical, and we'll be trying to figure them out and talk them through immediately afterwards. Many more guests to come. So grateful for your listening. Please, 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 if you like these and don't want ads and don't want to be cut off and want to have this maximally open to people, please subscribe to The Weekly Dish and we'll keep doing what we're doing. Until then, have a, have a lovely weekend and we'll see you next week. <music> <laughs>